please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to those joining us in the Fellowship Hall and online today as we continue to work our way through the story of Jacob in our Ancestry.Church series. Today, I really wrestled with what to call this message. I was really tempted to call it Schemers and the Redeemer because this story is chock full of schemers and they all clearly need a Redeemer. But what I ended up going with was where life is found and where it's not. Because at the end of the day, looking for good things is what makes a person want to scheme, right? But for most of this story, they're looking in the wrong place. The kind of life we need only has one source, and today is a continuation of that lesson that takes forever for Jacob and for us to learn that the good life is found in trusting in God rather than in our own power. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be covering some ground today in chapters 30 and 31 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The ushers will be coming down the aisles in a moment if you'd like to use one from the church here, or you can always use an app on your phone as well if you have one. So to summarize, here's where we are in Jacob's story. Jacob tricked his brother Esau into giving him his birthright and then tricked his father into giving him his brother's blessing as well. And because of that, he had to flee to a different country to live with his uncle Laban, who made Jacob work for seven years for his bride Rachel and then tricked him by giving him Leah, her sister, instead and then made him work for another seven years to marry Rachel. And last week we heard about how Leah and Rachel were competing for Jacob's love and favor until Leah gave birth to her son Judah and finally said, this time I will praise the Lord. So at this point in the story, we see Jacob is starting to get a little uneasy because he'd completed his 14 years of labor for Rachel. Now she is his wife, free and clear. And then Jacob looks around and he sees that he's got tons of kids, a vibrant home, and a lot of work. But none of the things he was working for were actually his. It was all Laban's. So in Genesis 30, 26, Jacob goes to Laban and he asks him to let him go his own way with his wives. And Laban, knowing that God had blessed him because Jacob was there, asks him to stay and tells him he's going to pay him actual wages now to build up his own family. So in uh, verse 31 of chapter 30, what shall I give you, Laban asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied, but if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. Let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages, and my honesty will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on the wages you have paid me, any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark-colored, will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. Let it be as you have said. You see, Jacob wasn't born yesterday. He did not trust Laban, and he knew that Laban didn't trust him. So he came up with this deal. Let's do it this way, Laban, so we can both clearly see which animals are mine and which ones are yours. I won't be able to trick you. And left unsaid, you won't be able to trick me either. It's not his own honesty that Jacob's worried about in this deal. And he's right to be worried because right after Laban shakes hands on this deal in verse 35, Laban immediately goes out to his herds and secretly takes out all the speckled and spotted goats before Jacob can get them. 
and he hides them with his own son's flocks three days away from Jacob. Nice. So after working for Laban for 14 years, now that Jacob's finally able to start making a living for his own family, where yesterday there was a sizable starter group of speckled and spotted goats in the herd, today Jacob wakes up to find there are zero. How do you think he felt about that? Jacob, the schemer, really doesn't like being schemed. And what do you do when you feel outmaneuvered and out of control? You want to get even, right? So Jacob pours all his furious, frantic, scheming energy into a plan to get as many striped, speckled, and spotted goats back into the herd as possible. And he does this crazy thing with putting striped and spotted branches by the watering hole in front of the strongest of the breeding animals. Now, I don't know the first thing about animal husbandry, but I'm pretty sure the color of the sticks around the breeding animals is not going to impact the color of the baby's coats. And yet, Jacob seems to think it will. And amazingly, it does. Why? Why does this work? Only because God does it. See, the truth is, Jacob didn't need to scheme up anything with sticks. He could have just done his work faithfully, trusting God to bless him, as God had already promised to do. But instead, he schemes and frets and stresses on how to get his victory over Laban. And I think God is really just throwing Jacob a bone here because he feels so out of control and he feels like he needs to do something. But in the end, Jacob is left with no doubts as to who is really changing the goat's spots. Because we learn later in Genesis 31, 7 through 12, that as the years pass, when Laban hears that there's a large number of spotted goats showing up, he decides, well, now Jacob's cut is going to be the streaked goats, not the spotted ones. And then guess what? All the mama goats start having streaked kids. And when Laban changes it again, God changes it again. And for six years, they do this dance until eventually Jacob has to admit this is beyond his scheming abilities. This is not his doing. Only God is making this happen. And after that occurs to him, he actually hears from God confirming it. I've done this for you, Jacob, because I've seen what Laban's been trying to do to you. And after six years of working on building up the flock, finally in Genesis 31.3, then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. It's time. Remember, this was part of God's promise to Jacob when he saw that stairway to heaven at Bethel. I will bring you back to the land of your father. So Jacob calls for Rachel and Leah to come out and meet him in the fields for a secret meeting, and he tells them, God said it's time to go. And these two sisters who fight about everything are united and wanting to find a life somewhere away from their father's influence. And they say, do whatever God told you. So it's decided. They're listening to God, and they're going. It's a small miracle right there. But then Jacob takes a misstep. Instead of trusting God to open the way for them and leaving well with his head held high, telling Laban, it's time for us to move on, and saying goodbye, Jacob chickens out. Because he knows Laban is not going to make it easy. And so rather than choose the hard road of leaving well, he chooses what seems to be easier right now, and they sneak out of town without saying anything to Laban. And as usually happens when we make that kind of choice, what was easy at the beginning ends up getting really messy later. 
And Jacob's part of the mess was being unwilling to be honest, trusting God enough to take the high road with his family. And the second part of the mess, of course, is that Laban feels disrespected by this sneaking out of town, and honestly, he's furious that he lost his chance to get something more out of Jacob. Laban feels out of control, and there's no way he's going to let that go. He's going to come after them. He wants to win. And Jacob ought to have known that. He's known Laban for 20 years. It's not a matter of if this conversation will happen. It's just a matter of when and how heated it's going to be. And if that wasn't enough, the third part of the mess is created by Rachel. Her father has messed with her life far too long. Not caring about her feelings, he treated her like a bargaining chip. And leaving under the cover of darkness isn't enough for her. She wants to leave knowing she's had the last laugh. So unbeknownst to Jacob, she breaks into Laban's tents while he's out, and she steals his household gods. Now, whether Rachel thinks they have any power or not, we don't know. But we can bank on her primary motive being to feel like she won over her father. And here comes the mess. Genesis 31:22. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Laban is furious. He's put together a posse, and he's been in pursuit of them for a full week. Now, that's serious. You can imagine anything could happen at this point. But then in verse 24, Then God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream at night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, this is the first time Almighty God made himself known directly to Laban, and what he says is, be careful, Laban. You're at a crossroads. Don't let your tongue lead you into something you can't get out of. See, in the freedom God has given to his creation, we all come to those kinds of crossroads, and it's pure mercy that God calls us up short and tells us, Be careful. You don't want to go where this is leading you. You see, it's love that tells a parent to tell their child not to touch the hot stove. But it's also love that doesn't lock up the child away forever just in case he might find a hot stove to touch. God can warn us. Doesn't mean we'll listen. Why is God telling Laban not to say anything good or bad? What's wrong with saying something good? God is telling him it's not Laban's place to talk Jacob into staying here or to flatter him. It's not Laban's place to try to take anything away from him because God has given Jacob a promise to bless him and to send him home to his father's country. This situation is not in Laban's control. No matter what he might say for good or for bad, this course is set by a bigger power than Laban. This chapter is over. God is speaking gently, but with all the power and authority of who he is. Laban, let it go. Don't let your pride take you down a road that's not going to end well for you. God issues a similar warning earlier in Genesis to a man named Cain, who is angry with his brother Abel. In Genesis 4-7, God says to Cain, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. 
I've always found this fascinating, that God doesn't say to Cain, if you do wrong, you can never be accepted again. He says if you don't do what's right, sin is like a tiger poised to attack. It wants to have you. Sin opens the door to evil getting its clutches in you and dragging you where you don't really intend to go. Does God say once you've done wrong, that's it for you? No. He says if you've done wrong, now is the time to realize you're going to be tempted to continue that pattern that goes nowhere good. So when you know you've done wrong, now is the time to stop and fight. Rule over it. You've taken the first step in the quicksand. Don't say, well, now I've done it. Might as well give up and dive in. No. Grab hold of a branch and pull hard in the other direction. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you rule over it. And what happens next in the story with Cain? Well, Cain hears God's warning, and then he goes out in the field and he kills his brother Abel. So needless to say, he doesn't fight it. He gives in to the bitterness of his heart, and murder enters into the world for the very first time. And Cain's life bears the consequences of his actions. Nowhere good. So God has seen this before. Now we go back to our story. God knows Laban too. He knows Laban's heart and what Laban wants to do in his anger. And God knows that because of his promise to Jacob, Laban's schemes would only backfire on him. So what would be best, both for Laban and for Jacob, would it be not to go there? Be smart, Laban. Sin is crouching at your door. You must rule over it. Say nothing to Jacob, neither good nor bad. And with that word from the Lord echoing in his mind, Laban finally caught up with Jacob in Genesis 31, 25 through 31. And he said, Why did you run away and not even give me the chance to say goodbye? And why did you steal my household gods? And Jacob answers him, Well, I thought you were going to take your daughters away from me, but nobody took your household gods. In fact, if you find anybody here with them, that person will be put to death. Jacob is absolutely offended because, of course, he doesn't know that Rachel actually did steal them. And knowing that her life is in danger, Rachel hides the stolen idols under her skirts, telling her dad that she can't get up because of female issues, which, of course, he doesn't want to hear about. Crafty Rachel, another schemer in need of a redeemer. This is an equal opportunity family. And Jacob, not knowing that they were actually guilty, goes off on Laban in Genesis 31, 36 through 53. Jacob was angry, and he took Laban to task. What is my crime? He asked Laban. How have I wronged you that you hunt me down? And then verse 41. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. Jacob has really given it to Laban. And even though God told him to keep his mouth shut, Laban can't help it. He's just got to get his two cents in just a little bit. And Laban answered Jacob, The women are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. You feel it ramping up? The fight's coming. 
Sin is crouching at the door, ready to pounce. And who's it going to take? Who are going to be the casualties of war over the question, who's in control? Is it Jacob? Is it Laban? Is it Rachel? And then all of a sudden, Laban remembers who is in control. And his sentence that starts out building into a fight powers down into, yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. Well, I believe this right here is a miracle of God. Because the sin crouching at the door that had been wreaking havoc between the members of this family for years was just shoved back in the cage. Because Laban saw the shadow of God was so much bigger. Now the cynical part of me kind of thinks this came from Laban's own sense of self-preservation. But even so, Laban recognized this path was the best path, the one of peace that God was offering him, and he was wise enough to lay down his fight and take it. But to see this freight train slam on the brakes and back up must have left Jacob speechless. Continuing in verse 51, Laban also said to Jacob, Here is this heap, and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. Now, this isn't much of a covenant promise as far as promises go. They agreed to pile up the heap of junk that stood between them and say, may God be the judge between us, because they could trust him to be fair, and they really didn't trust each other to be. And they promised they wouldn't go past that heap to hurt one another, and God would be their witness in keeping that promise. First, do no harm. It's a very small step but it's a step in the right direction. God had said, careful, Laban, don't let sin take you where you don't want to go. And miraculously, Laban listened. He stopped trying to control and he let go. And Jacob miraculously agreed. He stopped trying to get the upper hand and he let it be. Because God, who could make a spotted goat striped, was in control. Not Laban, not Jacob, not Rachel, God. And so they all put their grievances on the witness heap and they gave it to God to look after and they went their separate ways. And Jacob left the land of Laban who had deceived him and stepped back into the land of his brother Esau who he had deceived, out of the frying pan into the fire. But this time Jacob went knowing that God had promised to bring him back to this land. Jacob is finally trying to walk out of his faith. And you'll see a little bit about how that goes next week. It's hard. It's so hard to trust. We all want to be in control in this world where we're actually in control of very little. So what is God saying to you through this story today? Are there situations in your life that seem incredibly unfair, where you feel out of control like the victim of someone else's scheming, where you want to let loose your anger and let it fly? What's crouching at your door wanting to have your heart? Is there anything in your life that God is counseling you about? Beloved, be careful. What are you holding on to that you can't quite drop, but you know you can't throw it either? 
It's that cutting into your fist, that pain, that anger, that fear of being without control. What needs to go on your witness heap to let God watch over it for you? See, life is full of conflict with people who have different values. What benefits them? What benefits you? How do we move forward faithfully? We look for what's actually at the root of the conflict. You see, Laban had been using Jacob to try to build his own kingdom, and Jacob had tried to turn the tables on him. Suspicion breeds suspicion. Where does that lead? How do we define success? Is it winning over people? Is it relationships with people? Because you can't have both. You sacrifice one to get the other. But Jesus came to show us life is not about winning. It's not about being in control. It's about knowing who is in control and letting his love and life in us and around us and through us. We have to ask, where is life found and where is it not? In Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 15, while Jesus is teaching, a man in the crowd gets Jesus' attention by yelling out to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And obviously, this man feels he's not being treated fairly, that his brother is unkind or selfish or mean, and he's confident that Jesus is going to answer, rebuking his brother and saying, yes, stop being so selfish. Split the inheritance right now. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus' concern immediately focuses in on what's going on in the heart of the man who shouted out this request. Jesus doesn't ask about the situation or what's fair. He zeroes in on the sin that's crouching at this man's door that wants to have him because it's that he needs to fight. And Jesus' answer is a response to that danger. Jesus says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Whoa. He didn't expect that. Whether or not this man has as much money as his brother isn't going to matter for eternity. But what he allows to mold his heart will. Will he spend his life trying to be in control? Will he let bitterness and envy steer him? The danger Jesus sees is not this man's selfish brother. It's much more serious than that. It's about his heart. And what's at the root here? This brother covets what his brother has because it's not fair. He has more than me. Do we ever feel that way? Do you know that you have a lot of things that other people don't? Do you want them to live angry that you have more than they do? What does life look like when we're consumed by what we don't have? It leads to a bitter and angry life. So Jesus warns us, life is not found there in the abundance of possessions. Don't waste your life. Stuff is not eternal. People are who Jesus came to invest in because people are what he wants to take with him into eternity. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Is it fair what's happening? Probably not. But ultimately, does that matter? Are you letting bitterness direct your life? Let it go for your own sake because there is one greater than your trouble and he is here for you. 
Don't say good or bad. Leave it on the witness heap. Put it in God's hands and let God be God and you be his. And you'll begin to see a future of forgiveness and freedom that you could never reach on your own. A gift from the one who has already fought the battle for you. You see, when Jesus was crucified, he was led to Golgotha, a site out of town where the criminals were put to death. It was a garbage heap, a place where those who had raged against the Romans with violence and anger met a violent end, a place where those who had been victims of extreme injustice had died, a place where the bones of many innocent and not-so-innocent people had been discarded by those who would claim power over them. And it was here, on this garbage heap, that God himself gave witness. It was here where Jesus surrendered his power, surrendered all control to the hand of God his Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. So on the third day he could rise to walk the way of everlasting joy and peace and extend that joy and peace to you and me by offering us his nail-scarred hand to help us over that heap of grievances and hold on instead to what has given us life, his hand up out of the sinking sand. Because you see, the Redeemer has come for all of us schemers. He has paid the price. He has put his own life on the witness heap to set us free. Because there's only one who's in control. Will you hear his voice today? Will you follow him to where life is found? Will you leave the rest on the heap? Let's pray. Almighty God, Father God, will you help us to listen to you? Trusting that you love us, that you want what's best for us. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, show us when to speak and when to listen. I pray that you would keep our hearts from the hardness of bitterness and keep our hearts pliable in your hands knowing that you already took the just punishment of all that we've deserved on your innocent shoulders out of love for us. Lord, knowing that, help us be patient with others too. And teach us, Lord, to love first and to trust you enough to leave it at your feet. And we thank you for your patience with us. Show us the freedom that comes in forgiveness and in following you and you alone. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.